Welcome to the world stage. Uh, my name is Björn Sverdrup Tigerson. Uh, I'm a senior research fellow at NUPI, and I am here with Rana Mitter, who is a professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford. And we'll be taking up the STLE chair in US-China relations at Harvard next year. He has written a number of award-winning books on Chinese politics and modern history, in addition to being a well-known commentator on Chinese politics in international media and conferences, including the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, lucky to have him in studio to share some of his insights with even wider public. Uh, and we will now, over the next half an hour, go through some of the key developments happening in China domestically. Uh, as well as an overview of their foreign policy goals. Um, so, Rana, there, there's a lot to cover here um, when it comes to both domestic and international developments. What I would like to start out with, though, is um, there has been, to take this slightly local, there has been a bit of a political row in Norway over this this weekend. Uh, as we have seen um, a number of opposition parties in the parliament criticizing the prime minister for sending his congratulatory letter to his novel Chinese counterpart. Um, the criticism being that the letter is not at all critical enough um, and does not mention a, a number of problematic issues such as Hong Kong, Xinjiang, uh, etc. And the criticism also goes on, uh, harks back to um, Norway's normalization agreement with China in 2016, where we signed this paper, where Norway should do its best not to criticize China in the years going ahead. Um, and it, 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 it's very interesting for me when I look at... Because you have written, uh, co-written, I should say, a report in the UK talking of resetting UK-China relations and how to best conceptually deal with that. And as, as you wrote, there is no obvious precedent from which the UK can draw in developing a UK-China uh, engagement strategy. And I find that um, very uh, prudent uh, point to have in mind also with dealing with Norway-China relations, where Norway, clearly, the Norwegian political class clearly has yet to fully figure out how to deal with this very particular actor that is not only an economic superpower, but is also authoritarian and very different from the Soviet Union, or indeed Russia, where Norway has a lot of experience in dealing with them uh, and have you know, found a modus operandi for dealing with them with large degree of political consensus. But when it comes to China, that experience is not all that relevant. Um, so on that background, I'm very interesting to hear how you thought about which lessons um, you uh, given when it comes to how the UK as another non-EU member should think about its relationship to China? 
Well, thanks, Björn. It's really great to be here in Oslo and to have a chance to talk about some of these very important issues, particularly at a moment, as you pointed out, when there's a geopolitically very significant meeting happening, well, I suppose really just a few hundred miles from where we are here in, in Oslo, over in Moscow with Xi Jinping and Putin meeting. And that, I think, gives contemporary significance to that wider context of the last decade or so. So you say that the UK and Norway have something in common, which is that uh, we're both non-EU states, although, of course, with a relationship with the EU. But we also had the experience in the 2010s of being frozen out by China on a pretty semi-official basis um, in the case of Norway because of the row over, I think it was the Nobel Peace Prize that was uh, given to um, uh, Liu Xiaobo, uh, the uh, well-known dissident who sadly died in 2017, but uh, he was, of course, alive at the time of the award. And the UK um, had a an issue when, or at least the Chinese had an issue with the UK Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, meeting the Dalai Lama in London, and there was a big deep freeze in diplomatic relations for a while, until, interestingly, actually it turned briefly into what they called a golden era on the uh, the Chinese side, which was all about getting more Chinese investment. And I think that sudden change shows something quite important, and it is one of the things that I think the UK has to draw, and perhaps Norway, if there are parallels as well, which is that the relationship of any Western liberal democracy with China is in some ways going to be turbulent. But at the same time, there's always room for change. The situation of either Norway or the UK over the last 10 years, 15 years, has not been constant. It's uh, had ups and it's had downs. And it's also had various um, uh, areas where there has been a shift in emphasis on both sides. I would say that in some ways the UK has changed its attitude towards China more than the other way around in the last five years, by which I mean perhaps in the early 2010s in the UK we thought of China by that stage mainly as an economic power, pure and simple, an opportunity for British finance, uh, an opportunity for British higher education, for instance, to, to make inroads. Whereas nowadays those elements are still there. Uh, but I would say that on security areas, uh, the, for instance, the supply of Chinese telecommunications equipment to the UK system, which is now essentially prohibited by law, uh, or uh, a different issue, which is the question of whether or not Hong Kong holders of British overseas passports should be given free passage to the UK after the passing of the security law in Hong Kong in 2020. And they have been given that right. And there's been a significant uh, migration of um, Hong Kongers to Britain as a result. These have complicated the picture in various ways. And I think the difficulty has come in trying to sort out where those issues are core to the UK's interest and where they are important, but perhaps can take um, a, 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 a position that isn't necessarily at, at the centre. I've sometimes said that um, the UK has in the last five to seven years moved from a period of deep complacency about China to a period of occasional mass panic without necessarily having an intervening period of deepening knowledge. So I think the, the, the latter part, the deepening of knowledge, now becomes important. I would say in terms of a road plan, the report you kindly mentioned at the beginning, which is called Resetting the UK-China uh, Relationship, and it's available free online from the British Foreign Policy Group, and I co-authored it with 
a uh, brilliant geopolitical thinker back in London, Sophia Gaston, who um, uh, very, very much has, has taken an interest in the rise of China. And I'd say that we boiled down, in a sense, our advice to the British government into a three-part plan. Uh, and the three-part plan essentially is to look at each issue and ask one of the following three questions. Is it an issue that is of direct opportunity or vulnerability to the UK? If not, is it an issue of direct opportunity or vulnerability to places that are not the UK, but that we care about or that we have a relationship with, that we want to preserve, or we just think is a good thing? And third and most difficult, is it an issue which, when you come down to it, is actually internal to China, but because of values or because of elements of the way that we think about ourselves in the world, we want to talk about? And human rights obviously hits in, fits into that uh, category. Just to give very quick examples of what I mean by that. Um, something directly relevant to the UK. Right now, I think there is still some discussion about how far, how fast, and if at all, the UK banking sector can get more of a presence in the uh, the, uh, the the Chinese financial system. And it's one of the areas where the UK still has um, an advantage. It has global presence. Can it do more? And a UK vulnerability would be clearly cyber hacking. Uh, China, Russia, Iran all have the capacity and perhaps sometimes the will to try and see if they can get into the UK's systems. So that's a very direct opportunity or threat. Um, in the case of the second uh, category, there might be a question such as the South China Sea. Despite our Brexit, the UK has not in fact moved to the Asia-Pacific. We're still off the northwest coast of, uh, of Europe, uh, along with Norway, of course. But we do have an interest in shipping routes in the South China Sea. We even have an aircraft carrier that goes there now and then. So the question of why we would be thinking or how we'd be thinking about that relationship with Japan or Singapore or other countries in the region would fit into that second category. And the final one, of course, is the question of the Hong Kong security law. It's of the Xinjiang labor camps. In other words, when you come down to the geopolitics of it, these are things that happen within China's sovereign borders. But they're also things that liberal states do not simply want to sit on their hands and be silent about. And there's that question of where and how the UK should be speaking out about those issues because it's part of the definition of what the country is. And those are things that don't simply come instinctively. They have to be thought about, strategized. Sometimes democratic and liberal countries will take different views. One quick example, Japan. I would say that Japan as a you know, free and established democratic country, nonetheless, tends to talk a great deal about security issues when it comes to China. Also talks a lot about economic issues because it has huge investments in China. It talks less about individual human rights than perhaps Norway or the UK, not ignoring them. There are statements in the Japanese diet about these issues, but compared to security and economics, I would say that their calibration is different from what the UK, Norway, the EU, and other actors in Western Europe might do. So, so those are some of the, the guidelines, the guardrails that uh, we tried to put forward in that report to give a more, a more of a framework in which those decisions could be taken. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, and I must say, it is really striking. You talk about the degree to which the view of China has changed in the UK in the last five years. I was actually present in London when Xi Jinping made that famous ride down to Buckingham Palace in the Golden Carré. And 
I mean, speaking as a Norwegian, I think that was more pomp that I've seen in the entire rest of my life put together. Um, and things have changed. I mean, Schultz was talking about this Zeitenwende that we have seen with regards to Germany, but I, I think there is no exaggeration to see that that is kind of what we are in the middle of uh, when it comes to China as well. Talking about um, meetings with pomp, um, Xi Jinping, I, I just saw a video clip earlier getting off uh, his plane in Moscow to a full parade of guards in, in uh, fur hats. Um, this is a meeting that will be followed closely by just about anyone with interest uh, in the war in Ukraine, which I presume is just about everyone. Um, as you have talked about earlier, Xi Jinping is coming to Moscow in a, a, a position of unparalleled in the last decades political strength in China, but also with some serious economic issues he has to deal with um, back home. Um, to which extent do you think his need for West continued good West economic relations with the West will constrain what he is willing to give uh, in his meetings with Vladimir Putin? I think there's still a very strong interest in Beijing. So that does mean Xi Jinping, but also the new leadership team around him a top six in the Politburo Standing Committee of men, they're all men, who essentially owe their careers to Xi Jinping, so they're very close to him and it's a close-knit grouping. And then new figures who are essentially taking over the financial and economic side of the, the equation. They all, I think, have grave concerns that the Western world as a whole may turn against China and therefore a key policy is to try and find ways to separate bits off. So you mentioned Europe, and that's quite right, because the question that is asked over and over again in Beijing, in policy circles, is how far is Europe an autonomous actor in terms of its relations with China, and can it be made more autonomous? I mean, let's be frank, the US-China relationship at the moment is in a pretty rocky state. Um, it was pushed into a worse place by the balloon crisis of a few weeks ago, um, which turned out to perhaps to be less of a, an immediate crisis in terms of the effect of the of the balloon itself, but it did have the effect of um, uh, stopping the visit of Antony Blinken to uh, to Beijing, which might have been helpful in terms of calming things down. Um, it's still not impossible, of course, but very far from impossible, that there will be a new senior meeting between the US and China, but it symbolizes the fact that trust on both sides has broken down very, very uh, seriously. And there's also um, a strong sense, I think, both in Europe and China, that people have to be looking forward to the year 2024-25, when a new US president will be elected. Well, it could be the same US president, in which case things probably carry on as under Biden, but it could be a different president of the same party, or it could be a Republican. And some Republicans, not all, are looking for a more isolationist position for the United States in the world, and some are looking for a more confrontational position with regard to China. So China's making a lot of calculations around these areas, and one thing that they, I think, do feel is the case is that major European players, particularly Germany, to some extent France, 
are looking to try and create a dialogue that is not in opposition with that of the United States, that's not likely with the Western allies at all, but at least has a slightly different track to it. China, I think, would point, uh, sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently, to the economic interests of many of those actors in um, in China, and Volkswagen is one obvious example of that, but there are plenty of others that you could, uh, you could point to, uh, chemicals, manufacturing, and so forth, where there are big European sunk costs uh, within China, but also the understanding on China's part that they want to keep the European markets open. Now, the agreement that uh, Angela Merkel tried to get through before she stepped down, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, is basically stuck in the European Parliament because uh, various key figures, particularly in the Green Party in the European Parliament, have been sanctioned by China. And, you know, it seems fairly impossible that it could go through while there's still official sanctions on uh, on that side. So, you know, there may be some, well, there will be some significant diplomacy to do in those areas. But in terms of capital capital-to-capital discussions, uh, Beijing to to Berlin and also to to Brussels, I think that there is significant hope in Beijing that they can have that separate conversation with, uh, with the European Union. They would also, I think, look to find ways to build it into a new approach in the near future to relations with the wider world. You said at the beginning of your your comment, actually, uh, Björna, that um, everyone's interested in Ukraine. But it's worth remembering that although there is a general interest, the level of existential fear around the Ukraine crisis is a European and North American issue for the Global South, for Sub-Saharan Africa, for Latin America, for Southeast Asia, lots of places where China has an interest. Actually, Ukraine does not figure that highly as a major issue. And that, I think, is what China is currently looking to leverage or uh, nuance as it thinks about its own domestic economic issues. I don't use the word crisis because I think that suggests something that's about to burst or about to turn over, and I think that's not what's happening at the moment. But there's no doubt that the COVID pandemic really damaged China's domestic economy. And right now it's not firing back at the level that it ought to do. So in areas such as uh, retail, services, um, there's still a sort of, there's still a sense in the wider population that people aren't spending again. The idea of domestic consumption, that consumers are going to make the difference and actually you know, take money out of their pockets and buy these services, it's beginning to ride, to ride back. But having said that, there's still an awful long way to go. And I think part of the long-term issues that people notice, the fact that China has a demographic crisis, and that is a crisis, it's growing older quite fast, and the pension system isn't sufficient, that China is not like the more um, advanced economies, developed economies of East Asia, such as South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, that have quite um, strongly developed healthcare and social welfare systems. All of these are immediate crises that mean that, I would say, that the reconstruction of the Chinese economy, the need to hit that 5% growth target that they have for this year and then keep growth going, will both be a constraint in terms of what China can do domestically. But I think in the short to medium term, it will also affect China's foreign policy behavior because triggering a crisis that could essentially destroy or damage the Chinese economy would actually be very counterproductive from the point of view of the leadership. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's worth noting um, that the, the, the Tiananmen protests in '89 they they came about for a number of reasons, obviously, but also because that was a 
quite sizable economic downturn that China went through, and, and it's quite desperate to not see that happening um, again. We have, uh, and I think it's interesting to stay a bit longer on the, the topic of Europe as the, this pole in this multipolar world that, that I'm sure both he and Putin will be um, putting their stamp under now in, in, in not too long. Because it has been, I mean, even Mao was talking about having Europe be this separate pole that you could be used to counterbalance the United States. It's kind of an old trope in, 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 in Chinese politics. But over the last years, you've seen the Chinese policies towards Europe had this dilemma where, on the one hand, they have found it um, beneficial to do some divided empire. And, you know, the 16 plus one club, and you talk to some countries, you sanction some countries, you do these bilateral meetings with France and Germany. Whereas, if what you really want is a strong Europe to be a counterbalance to the United States, then what you would want is to build up EU institutions as much as possible. Um, do you see on how they traverse that dilemma? Do, do you think there will be a change uh, from Xi Jinping in putting more emphasis on dealing with the EU as... A, as an actor in and by itself and easing down a bit as I think indeed they have on like the 16 plus 1 or is it 15 plus 1 now um, well, with Lithuania I think it was yeah, 17 and then Lithuania dropped out because they were being yes, yeah. yes I think that there is a significant rethinking that seems to be going on mm. in Beijing about how to deal with these problems because I think there is a realisation that Chinese diplomacy in Europe, particularly during the COVID years, has lacked skill. It has been in some ways very counterproductive. And that was particularly notable with some of the ambassadors in some of the continental European capitals, including your neighbours in Sweden, where essentially the term wolf warrior has been used. And people will know that this comes from this famous um, movie of 2015 about Chinese um, uh, commando squads basically going rescuing uh, Chinese citizens in danger in, in, in Africa. But it's come a more general term for this very confrontational style of diplomacy. But I think the interesting thing is not just the tone, which is one thing, it's the audience. During that time, most Chinese diplomacy around the world, uh, certainly in the, the global north, and most of the diplomacy in Europe was much more oriented towards a domestic audience. Now, there's a practical reason that people know but almost have, have, have forgotten, I think, um, as to why that was. Don't forget that like diplomats everywhere around the world, no Chinese diplomat could actually go outside from their embassy and go and take part in any activity. They weren't taking place in think tanks. They weren't meeting government ministers. They weren't meeting anyone other than perhaps online. And so in some ways, it became a very inward-looking dialogue in which the important thing for the foreign ministry and its spokespeople and for embassy staff um, on the Chinese side was, how can we say things that will essentially get lots of clicks and ticks on the social media world in uh, back in China? And that ended up being essentially, and perhaps unsurprisingly, a push towards a more nationalistic message, which was essentially that uh, China... This was also at a time when, of course, China was pushing the argument, and again, it's only two years ago, but people <laughs> may have already have forgotten, that China was doing better than anywhere else in the world on COVID. Now, you're smiling, of course, listeners can't see, but you smiled at that, uh, but of course, the point is that that story has changed only very, very quickly. It's, it's less than five months, I think, 
since China's government was saying straight out that COVID regulations would be there for a very long time, and then they actually changed within the space of about three or four weeks, uh, and you know they've all been removed, never to be seen again. So again, that comes back to that wider point of how quickly and adaptably things can change on the on the Chinese side, and I think. One of the realizations has been now that the COVID regulations are gone and that it's possible for China to essentially have foreigners back in China as well, is that nurturing and cultivating Europe is going to be more important again. I think there is a realization that some or actually a lot of that very confrontational use of language in France, in Germany, in Sweden uh, has essentially been counterproductive. They look, you know, lots of organizations do uh, opinion poll surveys on favorability of different countries. And China's ratings during that time went down very, uh, very heavily. So the sense that it may be more important to try and create some sort of uh, dialogue with Europe, I think has gone up the agenda. The difficulty comes in the fact that Europe's role has, of course, changed during that time as well. There used to be a time, maybe not that long ago, when you know NATO did defence and the EU did economics and culture and the two didn't really mix with each other. Well, NATO's still very much there and, of course, has been revived by the uh, 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 Russian invasion of, uh, of Ukraine in a way that would have seemed unimaginable just two or three years ago. But also... The EU has begun to talk about defence, about security, about creating new sorts of engagement. And also, it has talked about security in terms that actually do impinge very much on the economic. In other words, the question of intellectual property, the question of how it is that markets can be judged as genuinely open in a way that uh, Europe, Europe, you know, Europe, the European Commission feels that China's markets still in many areas genuinely are, are not. So all of these uh, areas do provide opportunities for dialogue, but they also flag up that actually the space between China and Europe has probably grown further apart rather than getting closer together during that period. And so far... China hasn't shown a terribly skillful capacity to give a convincing long-term story that it can have that sort of separate dialogue with major European powers. The reason being that it's just evident over and over again. The Lithuania case is a good one where essentially Lithuania has been frozen out. It's no longer part of it. The 17 plus one went down to 16 plus one because of its willingness to get closer to Taiwan. And the signal that that sent, and which Beijing doesn't seem to have either realized or taken account of, is that actually doing deals outside these large groupings may be dangerous because the agreements that are put down on paper don't necessarily match the way that China will actually treat those relationships. Australia is perhaps the best example of that, which has ended up being sort of soft sanctions on a whole variety of trade areas for uh, years and years because of a variety of things, but one of them was to do with then Prime Minister Scott Morrison demanding that there should be an international inquiry into the origins of COVID. That may or may not be a good idea, but essentially uh, China decided to sanction Australian exports off the basis of that. And the fact that China and Australia had very early on signed a trade deal called CHAFTA um, didn't seem to essentially be uh, a sufficient protection against the decision by one side to take a sudden and quite arbitrary political decision. So I think European actors are looking at the Lithuania case, they're looking at other examples of countries being frozen out. We mentioned Norway, of course, is not in the EU, but it's in the EEA. These sorts of examples to say that actually any discussions with China have to be done with great care for the collective and not just the individual state.
Yeah, I think the Lithuanian case is really interesting in that <clears throat> China tried to really up the ante by threatening with um, secondary sanctions. Um, and of course, Lithuania being very dependent on the German motor industry. Um, so that was a threat that really made the Lithuanian uh, officials sit up and take notice. Of course, the blowback from that is that EU perceived that China was threatening you know, some of the core tenets of you know, the, the common market altogether. Um, so that was a bit of a high-stakes gamble that, that failed. And it's interesting to note that when you look at the statistics of the cases of Chinese economic pressure, went up on quite a substantial peak uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, as, as you say, China has been realizing how that gets increasingly counterproductive and then tapered it down, so it's at a way lower level. So I'll just um, add on that, Bjorn. You say China, and you're absolutely right to say that, but of course one of the things we've realized from the recent leadership changes is that we need more information and knowledge about whether different groups in China have different views about this question, particularly at the foreign ministry level, at the level of the state council and the level of the party itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that the overall worldview in Beijing in some ways is very, very unitary. You know, China is rising. There's a stronger sense of China being this nation state that whose moment has come in the world and that the economic and military power that it undoubtedly has should be used in China's interests. I don't think you'll find any senior person in China who doesn't share that view. But it does seem that there are differing views about what is the best way for China to achieve its goals. And a genuine division, I think, also, and this is quite interesting because it's, it's moved in a perhaps slightly unexpected direction. The new leadership is less international in its, in its experience than the previous leadership group. So Wang Yi, who um, had been the foreign minister, has now stepped into being the foreign affairs councillor, um, does have, I think, very fluent Japanese and I think pretty good English. Qingang, the new foreign minister, actually used to be ambassador in Washington, also speaks English well. So there are examples of people who have that outside experience. But an awful lot more people, particularly in the economics world, come much more from training within China. A view of the world, a view of China that is more autarkic in the world. So if you're talking about potential debates, and you know it's very difficult because it's, so it's so opaque, it's so lacking transparency, but between figures who think that China cannot afford to be out of the world. It needs to still be part of uh, the world that uh, enables you know, intellectual talent to be brought in, to be part of global supply chains, versus a group who actually think that the drive towards autarky and autonomy and self-reliance has to be the key demand. I think that's a real tension, and we don't yet know how it's going to, uh, to work out. But there's not just one Chinese view. I think that these things provide genuine differences of view within the leadership. Hmm, indeed. And I, I, mean, I noticed again, to get, to get back to your report, how you were underlining how important it is to increase the knowledge of China in Western countries, precisely to avoid that view of China as this big monolithic entity, when indeed it may be a black box, but there is a number of, number of uh, debates going on within that box, even though it, it's often very difficult to, uh, to keep, get an eye on. Um, when, when it comes to this kind of broad intellectual currents shaping China's worldview, as we, we were talking about, um, because, I mean, you, you've been writing a number of books, um, including one on um, China's war with Japan, uh, called The Forgotten Ally, 
at least in the US market, because <laughs> they like to talk about alliances there. Um, and you have also written then a second book, and I can heartily recommend both of them, uh, which goes on to saying, well, here is the Chinese war experience. How do they think about it? And how does that war memory shape current policies? Um, and of course, we are to get back to our good neighbor to the East Russia again. We have seen a lot of how Putin is using the memory of the Second World War uh, as a political tool. Um, so, so how, if you could just summarize, how does the Chinese leadership, and I guess Xi Jinping in particular, view the Second World War? And which kind of policy implications does the memory, the shape of it, have? Well, Bjorn, thank you so much for bringing up those books, and uh, I'm very glad that you uh, you enjoyed them. I hope others find them profitable as well. I would say that if I had to boil down to one idea that makes the history and experience of the Second World War so important for China today, uh, it is metaphor. In other words, the idea that things that are happening in the world today can either be considered uh, in some ways similar or comparable to the Second World War, or related to that, draw very directly from it. So when the COVID pandemic broke out in spring 2020, one of the first major metaphors, analogies, propaganda phrases that was brought out by the Chinese uh, Communist Party, by the state, was the idea that this was a people's war, a people's war against the virus. And any educated Chinese um, who's gone through the standard high school education curriculum in China would recognize that phrase, people's war, Zhang, as being the phrase that was, of course, first used by Mao and others against the Japanese. Uh, in other words, World War II and that period. The connections don't have to always be those confrontational ones. So something that, for instance, senior figures, uh, Wang Yi, at the Munich Security Conference at various occasions, um, also Xi Jinping himself, have repeatedly mentioned is that China, as a legacy of the first, uh, sorry, the Second World War, became not just a signatory, but the first signatory to the United Nations Charter in spring 1945 at San Francisco. Now, to some extent, this is a product of alphabetic order. So China was, of course, <laughs> able to sign first. But actually, the symbolism of it is important. And I think it's, it, it's key because if you go back half a century to the era of Mao Zedong, actually, the United Nations was not praised at all by the Chinese, not least since they were excluded from it uh, when Taiwan held the seat between 1949 and 1971. And even when they did get back into the UN, they were quite low-key for a long time. Not today. Today, China makes a very strong and specific argument. It's quite pointed that just as the United States fought and sacrificed lives and uh, you know, economic uh, uh, cost in World War II and as a result still has a role in the Pacific to this very day, three quarters of a century later, well, China should get the same allowance as well. Millions of Chinese died in World War II. Hundreds of millions became refugees. If China had not kept fighting, the Japanese might have won in Asia. And therefore, China's rights in terms of shaping the world that came after 1945 should also be recognized. So the message which is very, very well understood in the Western world of 1945, the end of World War II, as a point of origin for what we still call the post-1945 rules-based order, 
That is something that China now lays explicit claim to in a way that it actually almost rejected half a century ago. But the difference is that its vision of world order is not one that necessarily stresses um, individual liberties and so forth, but rather a collective economic good, uh, a collective economic sense of development. And in a sense, that makes it an alternative story about why we fought World War II. For the Western world, even now it tends to be, you know, freedom, democracy, relief from fascism. For Russia, well, that story has become more complex, not least because of its invasion of Ukraine, which it tries to portray as a new fight against Nazism, which nobody except Russia or Russia's leaders would actually accept. But in China, it's a different story again. It's World War II as the point of origin of China as a global power and China as a global power that believes in collective economic human development as a key goal. And that is something relatively new, but it's based, based very much on World War II as its point of origin. Mm. That's extremely interesting. Of course, w- when you say China and, and in, in the context of, of Second World War, things get muddied in a way that leads naturally onto the, the next topic on the list here, which is Taiwan. Um, because I guess the, uh, I mean, you've read more about this than what I have, but it seems the current history being taught in China about the Second World War is how the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army was in the vanguard of fighting back the Japanese whilst the nationalists, they helped a bit and then they messed up and got corrupt and then they were sent off to Taiwan. <laughs> Just uh, a neat summary. A neat yeah. summary. Yes. <laughs> um, where, of course, uh, whilst in Taiwan, um, they had for 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 quite a few decades a not massively democratic regime going on, uh, to put it mildly, until they eventually democratized, and is now currently. Um, for 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 Beijing, this kind of lingering, unfinished business from the Second World uh, from war and the civil war that followed, um, whereas for the Taiwanese, a little bit like you know Ukraine um, could a, a prosperous democratic Ukraine could be a challenge to uh, Putin's ideology and his view of what a state should be like. Taiwan is a living, breathing example of democracy being perfectly compatible with traditional Chinese culture and Asian values uh, and all these things. And uh, again, we keep getting getting back to this uh, this plane that landed this morning, but which, what do you think are the core lessons uh, Xi Jinping is taking away when he's looking at what has happened in Ukraine over the last bit more than a year now? Well, I think that one thing we're pretty certain about is that China's leaders, Xi Jinping, but also in the People's Liberation Army, in the State Council, in the top uh, echelons of the party, are looking very, very carefully at Russia's Mm. experience. They are immensely interested in it. They won't talk about it very much, I think, in public, but there's a sense that in a whole variety of areas in terms of economics, defense and weaponry, and also narrative, these are things that they have, I think, spent a lot of time thinking about. So first of all, in some of the more um, uh, 
straightforward areas of security and defence, I think they will have been very interested in the way that drones in particular have been used. And this is one area that uh, China, I think, will be looking at. Largely because it's worth remembering that as we speak, China hasn't been in armed combat in anger, you might say, since 1979. China hasn't been in armed combat in anger since 1979 when there was a brief but very bloody war with Vietnam on the border. Um, Russia, of course, has been in a series of conflicts in the 2000s and therefore it provides an example of what to do and what not to do. And I think the Chinese will be intrigued by both what Russia's managed to achieve in terms of destruction but also how it hasn't achieved its goals. Uh, it hasn't managed to do that lightning strike on Ukraine which was no doubt what was expected on many sides back in February of last year. Beyond that, though, I think that they will also have learned about how important it is to prepare against the possibility of sanctions. On the one hand, global uh, global North sanctions against China, if there were sanctions on the back of, uh, uh, say, a naval blockade on, on Taiwan, will be very damaging for the Western world as well. But there's no doubt that they will be immensely damaging for China. And that economic upturn that I mentioned earlier that uh, China is seeking to achieve, I think, would clearly be very da dam badly damaged by um, any such uh, such events. So looking at how far China can protect itself against that uh, sort of eventuality is also a key goal. But I said narrative, I think, is, is key. And I think also they will have looked at the way in which Ukraine, for certainly much of the Western world, was able very quickly to seize the narrative uh, they had, obviously, they have a very distinctive leader in the shape of Vladimir Zelensky, who's been able to, I mean, perhaps the fact that he does have this background in acting and performance, people mocked it at one point slightly, but actually it means that he's actually been very skilled at being able to speak to an audience, give a story in a concise way that gets real emotional heft. Um, I'm not sure that his predecessors in that position in um, uh, Ukraine uh, could have necessarily have done that. And I think they will have looked at that too and worked out whether or not there is some way uh, that the narrative could become Beijing's rather than Taipei's. And just this morning, we we're talking about things happening this morning, of course, the big news in this front is Xi's visit to, to Moscow. But less noticed, but you know, still on the, the front pages, is apparently a visit to the mainland by the former Taiwan leader, Ma Yingjiu, who, um, of course, was a representative of that very same party, the Chinese Nationalist Party, we mentioned earlier from their wartime experience. Today, the Guomindang, the uh, um, Chinese Nationalist Party, is a very different party from the 30s and 40s. It is impeccably democratic. It is part of a liberal pluralist system uh, and is not in any sense the party of Chiang Kai-shek's dictatorship. But it does have that longer historical connection with communities on the mainland. And that is what's being stressed by this unofficial visit by Ma Yingjiu. Now, what will come of it, we just don't, simply don't know at this point. But it is a sign, first of all, that there is an attempt to try by the mainland to have some sort of dialogue or engagement with elements in Taiwan who it thinks it can speak to. It's notable that from what we've gathered, Ma is not going to Beijing, he's not meeting Xi Jinping. Technically, he's going to visit the graves of his ancestors. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an unofficial visit. But it's also a sign that I think that those stories about how to tell the story of a Taiwan rapprochement with the mainland are being thought about. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll succeed. They may not succeed. But I think that that news about Ma ying is interesting in terms of showing there's more than one strand to this quite complex story. Indeed. And it, and it also goes to show, again, 
um, the linkages between foreign policy and domestic policies and how they all intertwine and will continue to do so, shaping the world we will live in for the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, and so for enlightening us on, on a number of key points there, thank you so much, Rana, for taking the time uh, to be here. Björna, it's been a huge pleasure. It's my first visit to Oslo, but I hope not my last. And I look forward very much to continuing to be in dialogue over months and years. We'll do our best to make it a good visit.